Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. If you didn't open your Bibles yet, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. would love you to be there with me right now. Uh, as you're turning there, just a quick comment. We had a blast on Friday night with our bowling, uh, our bowling night as a, a church family. Uh, if you missed it, uh, sorry. But uh, I, I will say this, uh, there was a certain person who came up and just kind of looking at the scores on the TV said, yeah, we're definitely not starting a church bowling league. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Moles. <clears throat> Um, So guys, yeah, the the passage that we're in today is John chapter 1, and it is super intertwined with our text from last week. So if you happen to miss last week, that sermon is available online on our website, uh, waynesborofm.com. I should know our website, right? Um, But let me kind of review a little bit of it before we get into today. So last week, uh, we basically came to an understanding of how we are to understand ourselves, We came to an understanding of how we're to identify ourselves uh, based on John's testimony, based on what we see him do. Uh, So Johnny B., which is shorthand for John the Baptist, not uh, Johnny B. Good, um, just so you know. The problem was uh, Johnny B. was like bucking up against the system, established order, right? He was was doing things that were making the the, the headquarters in Jerusalem a bit uncomfortable uh, because he was pushing the boundaries. and, And they send out a delegation to him and they ask him who he is. Like, what's his identity? And what was his response? What did he break it down into? Who I am, not who I am, and then who... Jesus is. Coming to understand who we are, first by who we're not, and then who we are, and then in the light of who Jesus is. And so then they asked Johnny B, like, hey, then if you're not who we think you are, then, then why are you doing what you're doing? And, and I paused there for a second to only mention something very briefly about this concept that our, our identities are very much inter- interconnected with our actions. Uh, that, that who we are, the world won't understand, and therefore they won't even understand the things that we do. They won't get this. Like, this seems strange to them. But I want to elaborate a little bit more on that. How identity is connected to actions in a way. So, what I mean is, our identities, who we are, meaning those defining characteristics about ourselves, are both limiters and enablers. You know what I mean by that? Like, like they limit things that we can do and they enable things that we can do. So, uh, for an example, part of the physical identity that I've received is that I'm kind of a tall guy, right? Which means there's a limit on, there's a, that limits me from certain things, doesn't it? It means I'm never going to be able to go up and enjoy a ride on the Blue Ridge Parkway in a Mini Cooper, but I will in my truck, uh, it, also, it also means that I might be able to reach up on that top shelf to get that dish that you might not be able to reach. Uh, another part of my physical identity uh, is that I uh, am losing my hair. Uh, so that limits me uh, from finding joy in life. <laughs> that enables me to figure out how shiny I could get my bald head whenever it goes that way. Um, one other example would be, I, um, I am a biological male. Uh-oh, where's he going with this? 
Um, so just, just to put it plainly, that definitely means I'm not able to give birth to children. That's a limit on my identity. Uh, but it also means statistically I can throw a rock further than most women. Do you know that's how they measure it? The comparability of strength between men and women, it's about how far you can throw a rock. I research it. Go research it. It's ridiculous. What are we in Scotland in the, in the 1800s? <laughs> but are you getting the point? Like there's certain parts of our identities that act as enablers, but they're also limiters. They can refine and confine the things that we can or cannot do. So with that in mind, don't you think it would be a really good thing for us to really know our identities? Because then we know our limits, but we also know our giftings and strengths. We know our weaknesses, but we also know what we're good at. So it's really good to know who we are, isn't it, church? It's why knowing our identities can be so beneficial, which is why last week is so important for us. But it, it doesn't mean squat if we don't get to the text today. Because today's text connects right into this concept. Our identities get to enable or limit the things that we can do and and there's, there's things in this passage where, where I, I walked through it once and gleaned this stream of thought. And I walked through it again and I gleaned another stream of thought. And so this morning is going to be broken down into kind of two sections, two streams of thoughts. And, and, and the first stream is, that, and you can actually, if you're taking notes, you can outline it with these two. First, it's confirming the identity of Jesus, which is the main thrust of this passage. And then secondly, it's confirming the service or the ministry of Jesus. Who he is and what he's here to do. You want to explore that with me, church? So let's take a look at this. We're going to dive into this text and we're going to see that John confirms for us exactly who Jesus is. And he confirms for us exactly what Jesus has come to do. But let me, before we get into this text, I have to build the context of this situation because there's, there's some stories that have been assumed in this text that we didn't read yet in John 1. And that's the story of Jesus' baptism. I'm not going to take too long, but I do think it's important because most scholars believe that uh, uh, chronologically the baptism of Jesus happened before John uh, the Baptist uh, testified in this way in this passage in verse 29. And so uh, John's gospel doesn't record Jesus' baptism. The other three do. So that's why I, I want to at least put that on the foundation of what we're looking at this morning. So, so John, not in this passage, but in the, the story about Jesus' baptism, he's out in the wilderness and he's baptizing people and Jesus comes up to him and, and Jesus uh, says that Johnny B, hey, baptize me, boy. And Johnny B says what? Uh, no, I need to be baptized by you and you, you're coming to me for this? And you guys, you know what Jesus' response was. He said what? Let it be so so that it may be the fulfillment of all righteousness right and so what happens johnny b gets to dunk jesus he baptizes jesus into the water and jesus comes up out of the water and what happens miraculously after that the skies the heavens open up and the the spirit of god descends on jesus like a dove and it comes and it rests on jesus and then there's this voice a booming voice from heaven that says what what does he say you tell me this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. <laughs> Guys, this is a supernatural 
It's a miraculous event, one that was astonishing, one that caught everybody off guard. And it it does something rather transformative for John the baptizer. It does something that changes everything about him. And he testifies to it in this passage. It's the first stream of our thought in this morning. What did that do for Johnny B? It confirmed the identity of Jesus. That baptism, that act, what happened there confirmed the baptism or confirmed the identity of Jesus. We're going to skip down to verse 31. Take a look at that. Verse 31. I didn't know him, him being Jesus, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. All right. So, guys, the world was desperately needing its Messiah to come, though most of it didn't realize it. And the Israelites, Israel was waiting and longing for their consolation to come, the consoling Redeemer to come. But who would he be? We've heard whispers of him throughout the Old Testament, even sometimes Isaiah 53 shouting at us, hey, he's coming. But who would he be? This guy, this Messiah needed to be identified. And and this is what happens here. We see John the baptizer baptizing with water for what purpose? What does it say in verse 31? I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he, what? Might be revealed to Israel. So that he would be made known. And it turns out, his name is Jesus. And he's from Nazareth. (laughs) Now, I want you to not get too hung up on the two times that John the baptizer says, I did not know him, okay? That, that's not that conflicting as it may seem at first. You got to remember, Johnny B and Jesus were what? What was their relationship? They were cousins. They were straight up cousins, right? So Johnny B actually had like probably had a relationship with Jesus growing up. But all he knew about Jesus at most was that Jesus was the good kid who never got in trouble, right? And who just got, annoyed the mess out of him because it was always John the baptizer's fault. Because Jesus never did anything wrong, right? John the baptizer probably even knew some of the prophecies that had been told about Jesus from from Mary or from his own mom, Elizabeth. And so, in reality, yeah, they, they probably knew each other, probably knew about this, but from this moment, what identified Jesus as the Messiah It wasn't his baptism, as the other Gospels might say. It wasn't even the voice from heaven. But at this moment, Johnny B. became convinced that Jesus was the Messiah because of what? Because of what happened. The signifying mark of the promised Messiah was that the Spirit would descend on him and remain. Literally, that word means to abide. It's where we get it elsewhere. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit apart from me. You can't do anything. This is the, the, the interconnectedness, the Spirit and the Son abiding, resting. This is what set Jesus apart, and it's revolutionary. Because you, you see, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was present. 
He would come and he would descend on people to, uh, to, and, and be enabled by God to do the certain tasks that God wanted them to do. And then the spirit would leave them. So kings and judges and prophets would, would be anointed with the spirit of God. And they would do their God-appointed task and their God-appointed work. But then, poof, spirit would just leave. They would, leave, they would lose the anointing. But that's not for Jesus. No, you see, Jesus, the Spirit descends on him, and the Spirit does what? What's the word there? It rests. It remains on Jesus. And for Johnny B., that's the proof. That's the evidence. You see, it's the permanent anointing that the Old Testament had been prophesying about. Guys, I would show you Scripture, but I forgot my remote. Actually, I think it might be right there. Okay, do me a favor and football that thing up to me. Hey! All right. Teamwork. Isaiah 11 says this. This is, this is hundreds of years before this. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse being who? David's dad, right? And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So Jesus is this prophesied, permanently anointed Messiah. The spirit-filled Messiah from the lineage of Jesse. Now, that's what happened at the baptism for Johnny B. He confirmed, man, man, Jesus really is the Messiah. So now fast forward to this text today. John's again out in the wilderness baptizing people. And the delegation from last week, we read, they get sent out to him. They're asking who he is. He answers their queries, and he keeps on baptizing. And then what happens the next day? This is literally the next day, right after that, Johnny B. sees who coming in his way? Jesus. He sees Jesus. And what is John's response? Well, he extols and confirms the identity of who Jesus is. In his testimony, in this passage, there are two main titles that we see attributed to Jesus, and they both end with, of God. What are they? What's the first one we saw? Behold the Lamb of God. And then at the end, he says, I have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The Lamb of God and the Son of God. So those are the two identifying markers that we see about who Jesus is. First, let's take a look at the Lamb of God in verse 29. The next day, let's read verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, hey, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me, which is an echo. We've heard that several times already in John 1. So, so John sees Jesus coming his way out in the wilderness, and he shouts out, Hey, everyone, look, it's the Lamb of God. And that is obviously Johnny B's, one of Johnny B's most famous phrases, is it not? You, you know it well, right? And this is the only time this, is, this phrase is ever used in the Bible. The only time this title is ever used, the Lamb of God, and it actually is drenched with meaning. Because you see, the Jewish people that were around them 
were very accustomed to what lambs were meant for and what they were a part of in their culture and in their covenant keeping. You see, they were aware that there was a sacrificial system put in place and even meals that were put in place that they would often participate in that would utilize lambs. So, for example, back in Exodus chapter 12, right, we see uh, the Passover lamb gets used. Uh, how many families did the Passover lamb uh, where they took the ketchup and painted it on some cardboard and put it on the door lentil this past week? Our family did. We put some, that's part of the illustration. You, you take the blood of the Passover lamb that's pure and spotless, and you paint it on the lentils, and the angel of death would pass over you. You would be passed over safe. Right? So we see a lamb there in Exodus 12. In Exodus 29, we see part of the covenant that God makes with Israel. There's, there's this command to sacrifice a lamb daily. One in the morning and one in the evening. And that was designed to take away the guilt of Israel. And then throughout Leviticus, we see lambs and other animals as well that were used for sacrifices for sin offerings. That would, that would cover over sin. That would, 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 would create peace Temporarily between God and man. You see, lambs meant everything to the Israelites. Into their sacrificial system and into the relationship with God. As without a lamb for sacrifice, Israel would not be forgiven for sin and be reconciled back to God. So, so one of the things we see when John says, hey look, the lamb of God. He is he is coding that with everything from the Old Testament. Yep, the Passover lamb. Yep, the daily sacrifice for sin. Yep, the sacrifice to atone for all of our guilt and shame. The lamb of God. And here's what's crazy. Here's what's even crazier. Hebrews 10.4 says this. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats, assuming all animals in there, to take away sins. Truly. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So guys, the Old Testament's Passover lamb, the daily sacrifices for sin, the, 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 the day of atonement sacrifices, those were all simply just shadows that were pointing to something greater. To a day when a sacrifice would be made once for all sins. So the Jews were just seeing shadows through all of their history, but we see the substance here. Jesus, the Lamb of God. And, and just so we're clear, by the way, uh, when those lambs were sacrificed in the Old Testament, uh, did they make it out okay? Were they out in the fields frolicking around, enjoying their cotton ball coats and stuff and being good and everything? What happened to them? <laughs> right? They didn't make it out okay. They were slain. Their blood was poured out. So one of the things that John the baptizer is already indicating that Jesus is the Lamb of God who will pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He's already prophesying that Jesus is going to give up his life. And his ministry is just beginning. <laughs> Whew. And this is going to move us into the last part of Jesus' testimony, or John's testimony about Jesus. Because he's going to make another identifying mark. That First, what? Jesus is the Lamb of God, but what is the second one they say? That he is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. 
Some of your translations might say the chosen of God. Uh, that's just a, 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 some problem with the manuscripts. There's some differences, and most people are affirming, son, I'm not going to take the time to explain it because I don't even understand it in some ways. But anyways, the son of God, verse 34, I have seen and testified that this Jesus is the son of God. So the, the baptizer becomes convinced and starts testifying and sharing and preaching that Jesus is God's son. Like, like, do you realize, like, this is, the, this, is the, this is the core thing in our testimony as Christians, is it not? Like, we, we testify, we confess, we're convinced Jesus is the Son of God. Now, guys, I, I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard it multiple times. I've heard people come up and say to me, they're skeptical, and they say, the Bible never says Jesus is the Son of God. Like, how many times do I have to do this? It's, it's right there. I have seen it testified that this is the Son of God. This is the first time, clearly, I mean, we've heard all throughout the first prologue how clearly Jesus is, the God, is God and the Son of God, but this is the first time, clearly, where it's attributed to him, and it's the first of 21 times in the Gospel of John alone where Jesus is either explicitly or implicitly said to be the Son of God. So I don't know what they're talking about. It makes no sense. Jesus is the one and only. He is the uniquely begotten of the Father. Come to exegete the nature of God to us, which is an echo back from verse 18. And here's the crazy thing. The Gospel of John at the end tells us that if we believe that, if we believe Jesus is the Messiah, and notice how he says at the end, the Son of God. He equates the Messiah with the Son of God. If you and I confess this, if we believe this, then what happens? What do we find? Life. We find life in his name. If we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We also find in, in one of John's letters, uh, in 1 John chapter 4, we find this. He says, whoever confesses, in other words, they're not just saying it with their mouths. It's coming from the conviction of their hearts. That Jesus is the Son of God. God remains in him and he in God. You notice the language remains, abides, God's presence. So this is one of the loftiest, and I would probably say one of the most scandalous parts of our faith. It's one of the most scandalous parts of our confession as Christians. Like you and I, we believe that the relationship between the, the man Jesus, who we believe was the God-man, and the all-creating, all-holy God of the universe, the relationship between the two of them is father and son. We believe that. That's what this reveals to us. And it almost seems like an unnatural thing to say, doesn't it? Almost like God has a son, right? Like it feels unnatural in some ways. But guys, I just got to tell let me remind you of some things. There's some really unnatural things being said out in the world today. So I think we're totally okay. I think it's fine. We can say, God has a son and his name is Jesus. Now we also believe Jesus is one with the Father, that they are one existence, three persons. That's a Trinitarian sermon for another day. But it's okay. It might feel unnatural, but goodness, it's beautiful. 
So we say that Jesus is identified in this passage. He's identified to Johnny B. And Johnny B identifies him for us with what two titles? I'm not going to help you this time. The first one, the Lamb of God. The second one, the Son of God. Let's keep working. He's the Lamb of God. In other words, what we see Jesus saying here is, I am the Lamb of God. I am the provision from God to make atonement for your sin, to offer up my life and pour out my blood. And he also says, I am the Son of God, the only human to uniquely carry the nature of God in the flesh. Now that's not all this text does for us. That was the first stream of thought. That's the first stream. The second one, we're going to try to book through as much as we can because I see the time, but my timer isn't working, so I'm going to ignore that. So there's more to this text because it doesn't just show us the identity of Jesus or confirm that for us. It shows us the ministry of Jesus, which we get to the second part. It's what, we, it's what he's come to do. So let me set it up this way. Guys, ever since Genesis 3, the stories of this book are filled with pages of, of God's word and God's efforts in humanity that all carry one of, like the same theme. And that's simply this. And let me put it up. God draws us out to draw us in. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. God draws us out to draw us in. So out of wandering into settling, out of slavery into freedom, out of darkness into light, out of being forsaken into being found and into being belonging, out of anarchy into a kingdom, out of defeat into victory. He draws us out to draw us in. And one of the things that we see Jesus do in this passage, one of the reasons Jesus came is to do this very thing, to draw us out, to draw us in. Look at verse 29 again. What does it say? The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So because of who Jesus is, his identity, the Lamb of God. He can and he does draw us out of sin. So oftentimes we think of sin as like that lie that we said a few days ago, right? Or, 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 or the, uh, the, the deceit that we offered up to cover up a mistake that we've made. Or, or sometimes sin in our minds is, is the, the time we cheated on some tests. Or, or sometimes maybe we accidentally got a little too drunk or, or whatever. That, that one time you did something, right? Something bad. Now if this is how you think, you're not wrong. But if that's all you think sin is, then you've missed it. Because sin is a little bit more than just that. So much more than just the list of misdeeds that we've done. And I can show you that according to verse 29. This is not a trick question. Is the, is the word sin here in John's statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is that singular or plural? Let me help you. Is there an S on the end of it? No, it is singular who takes away the sin of the world. So wait, the whole world, all humanity only sinned once? No, 
That's because sin isn't simply just a list of mess-ups, though that's part of it. Sin is a state of being. It's a state of being. There's a statement that I'll say every now and then, maybe helps clarify this. It's not, we sin, we sin, therefore we're sinners. No, it's the opposite. It's, we're sinners, therefore we sin. You understand the difference? There's something inner, in, inside of us, something about our nature, the state of being. In other words, sin isn't just a behavioral problem to be corrected. Sin is a nature problem that has to be redeemed. So I love this quote from Chuck DeGroote on, on what sin is. It clarifies this. He says it this way. More often than not, we see sin uh, reduced to bad behaviors or actions, right? Sin is something we did wrong. We do not see it as a complex matrix of motivations and attitudes and actions which are rooted in hiding, in self-protection, in self-preservation. It's a complex matrix. And here's the toughest part. Here's the toughest part. John says here that he came to take the, the, away the sin of the what? The world. In other words, the whole world is in that state of being. Born inherently sinful. Guys, I don't know if that's hard news for you to hear this morning. And, and, and if I'm offending you, I'm not sorry. I love you. We're sinful beings. We're born sinful. We're born with a brokenness about us. And to ignore that would be to not love you. But when we indulge in those sinful inclinations... And you've probably seen this to be true time and time again. When you indulge in those sinful inclinations, there are some natural consequences that come out that are just messy and broken. Sin itself has consequences. So let me just try to illustrate it this way. Let's say that I'm just a totally arrogant dude. And you might actually find that out. <laughs> um, let's say I'm so selfish that, uh, that when I go home, everything's about me. Who would suffer? My, my wife and my kids, exactly. Everyone around me would suffer if I am walking in my sin. Or let's just take a world example. Let's say some, some uh, leader of a country suffers from the sin of arrogance. What might he do? He might go invade another country thinking it's his. And how many people are suffering because of his arrogance? Millions. Sin has natural consequences and it causes suffering all over the place. And guys, I've, I've never been so exposed to the sinfulness and to the brokenness of our world than I was on a, on a, on a I did a ride along with my twin brother. For those who don't know, I have an identical twin brother. I'm just going to clarify for you. He's cooler. He's better looking. Don't worry about it. But I did a ride along with him one night. It was an all night long ride along. And I, I was just, I, I'm, it took a few days to recover, not just from the sleep, but from the emotional proponents of it. Um, so it started out first with me having to put on a bulletproof vest so that I could ride along, which is sobering. 
As soon as we got in the car and were on patrol, we got a call that a four-year-old girl was missing already in the city, just gone. And the streets are covered with police looking for her. She, she was found, but there's a brokenness there. We, we at, at one point in that night, we dropped in on a street corner where there was a, a gang member who had just recently uh, been shot while the police were trying to uh, carry out an arrest warrant because he was a drug dealer. And, and he was shot because he was trying to kill another police officer, one of Mark's fellow comrades on the force. And because of that incident, the mom with her three kids on that street corner are always so scared to go outside and play that the police every now and then just go show up on that corner to remind them we're here. The night went on and, and we ended up uh, going to the county jail, uh, which is a holding facility for some time. And, and, and there, Mark was booking some people. And, 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 and while we're in there, I actually walked over and just kind of noticing something. And I saw a girl in a jail cell, strung out on drugs, with her shirt tied around her neck, trying to choke herself to death. So I told Mark, and Mark got the other officers, and they went in and intervened. Um, this one kills me. Uh, Mark told me that once they found, at 3 a.m., one morning in the middle of a thunderstorm, they found an elderly woman who had no legs, and she was taking a bath out in the puddle in the middle of the storm in front of a church because she had nowhere else to go. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, that sin caused that directly, right? But there's an inherent brokenness and a devastating part to that where you, you can't say that that's not how God designed things, right? Like there's something that was broken long ago in the fabric of creation where little kids don't go missing, where, where paralyzed women don't have to take baths out in the street, where, where girls are in the jail cells are not, are not choking on themselves. Like, like there's something wrong. And it all started when sin came in. And so the brokenness and the devastating reality of the world around us is because of sin way back then, if not today. Guys, and our whole world is infected with this cancer. And it leads to incredible brokenness and suffering. But, but praise God. We've got a lamb who does what? He takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. And I'm not just talking like he covers over it with a rug, sweeps it under and says, oh, it's no more. You just ignore it, right? No, no, no. He picks it up and carries it on his cross and he takes it away from as far as the east is from the west from us. He carries away our sin. So in this very second, Jesus is, is drawing us out of sinfulness, out of dysfunction, out of brokenness. And he is carrying it away as he heals the leper. As he gives sight to the blind. As he forgives the adulterer. 
And he dines with the tax collectors and he dies for the filthy sinner. He is, he is drawing us out of sin. It's what he's come to do. And all of its consequences. So he's drawing us out. But I also said that he's drawing us in. What does this passage say that he's drawing us into? Well, John tells us, look at the end of verse 33. Jesus is able to do something here that no one else can do. Verse 33. This is he who does what? What does he do? Say it. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, depending on your denominational background, depending on your view of of what baptism is, uh, if you just believe that baptism is just a sprinkling of water over someone's head, this is quite depressing, right? That'd be like really depressing if baptism is just a sprinkling, like, hey, hey, you receive Jesus and he'll, he'll, he'll sprinkle some of his Holy Spirit sprinkles on you, right? Like, what's that dude do? Like, here's some sprinkles, Holy Spirit, right? If that's all baptism is, then man, no, but that's not what baptism means. Baptism means, it means immersion. It means like you go down into it and whatever you're going into, it touches every part of you. Everything about you. So when, when John says that Jesus is going to baptize you and I in the Holy Spirit, he means the, the, the lives of God's people will be plunged into the life of the Spirit with profound and pervasive effects. So guys, baptism into water is just simply a picture of us being immersed or baptized into the Spirit of God. And So like baptized, being baptized into water is like being touched by a lightning bug. Being baptized by the Spirit is being hit by lightning. A little bit of difference there, isn't there? And when we're immersed into the Spirit, the Spirit gives us new life because He's given us a new birth. We are born again by the Spirit of God so that we are new creatures Created after his likeness, not of this world, but of another world, walking in a new way of life. And this is the very thing that God promised back in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says this, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. So not only do we get to experience this baptism of the spirit, which happens upon our conversion when we receive the Son of God. At that moment, we ourselves get to experience new life, but not only that, we become life givers because the Spirit of God is flowing in and out of us. It's overflowing from us, so the Spirit flows out like it's brimming out and it just gets other people wet as we walk in the Spirit. And they find new life in Christ alone. So, brothers and sisters, This is what's on the table when we say, hey, come receive Jesus. This is what's on the table. Jesus draws us out of sin and into spirit life because of who he is. What were the two things he is? He is the Lamb of God and he is the Son of God. And because he is the Lamb of God, he draws us out of sin. Because he is the Son of God, he gives us spirit life. He draws us out to draw us in, and trust me, guys, this isn't a perfect process. We're a part of it, the process, so it's, it's going to get a little messy. We're, we might stumble along the way, and as imperfect as the process is, and as much as we're going to stumble, we will stumble forward. 
Jesus will be taking away the areas of brokenness and sinfulness in our lives and in its place putting the reign of God's Spirit within us to rule and reign. Guys, the Spirit of Jesus, it touches every part of you. So that, like the complex motivations and attitudes and appetites, all of those slowly but surely become rerooted out of sin and into truth and into authenticity, into self sacrifice and self denial. Which means now that the evidence that you're a Christian. The evidence that that you are someone who has faith in Jesus isn't the list of good deeds you do. It's not the list of good deeds. It's not the fact that you've nailed your devotions for the last two months in the morning. Man, you're killing it. It's not the fact that that you've stopped doing this bad habit. No, the ultimate confirmation of who you are in Christ is the increasing absence of sin and brokenness within you. And the increasing presence of Jesus in you. That bears fruit. Like, oh, I don't know, love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Guys, this is the spirit life that Jesus is drawing us into as he draws us out of sin. And like, This is the most amazing part of the gospel. Can you just see how much God is for you? Are you able to see that in this text? That he really is for you? He's not against you. He wants to bring you out of the sin and brokenness that has just wrecked your life. And he wants to be walking with you daily. He draws us out of sin and into spirit life. And so I can't think of any other way to to close out our time than to issue the invitation for you to just receive the identity and ministry of Jesus. And I'm not talking about those of you who might be skeptical, who aren't following Jesus, who are who are um, uh, like you're distant from God, you're far from God and you know it and, and you're just kind of not sure what you want. Yes, please come receive Jesus. He'll draw you out of sin and into spirit life. But I'm also talking to you, church. That wasn't just a one and done thing when you decided to pray a prayer a few years ago or come to the altar. Every day, he makes available for you and I, hey, come, I'll draw you out of this sin and into the spirit life that I've promised you as you walk with me. Guys, I wish, I wish that the drawing out of sin was as simple as, okay, poof, sin's gone. But what kind of relationship would we have with God if that's how he did it? No, he wants to walk with us as he draws us out of sin and into spirit life. So I would just ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes at this time. And I, I want you to kind of examine your life with the help of God's spirit. What would you say What's the characterizing sin of your life that just feels so broken? It's wreaking havoc in your relationships and in your soul. It doesn't have to be big. It can be subtle. Where is God's spirit not living and reigning in you? 
would you take a second to just prayerfully reflect? Prayerfully go to God and say, Jesus, I see you offering to draw me out of the sin and draw me into spirit life. I'm going to hold you to your promise, God. Would you please do this? That's between you and the Lord. I can't do that for you. So take that time now.